Amen. My name is Matt Bartell. I'm one of the elders here at Joy. I've had the privilege of being here for about 20 years, me and my family. And it's just a, a great opportunity for us to hear the gospel so explicitly proclaimed in this passage. So please turn to Acts um, chapter 2, verses 14. I'll be reading to verse 41. It's on page 910 of your chair Bibles. Acts 14 to 41, Acts 2, 14-41. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered of the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my serv male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up According to the definite and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and, the tomb, and his tomb is with us to this day, Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. 
For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received this word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Three thousand souls, Lord, can trace our lineage back to those this day, Lord, where the word was proclaimed and and they believed, Lord, and repented. And Lord, may we be reminded of of our repentance and faith in you as our spiritual birthday, Lord, that we can recount what happened, the work that you did to these weak jars of clay that now carry this message to a lost and dying world, Lord. And if there are those here that don't know you, Lord, may their ears and eyes be opened. Lord, we pray for a blessing on Jason as he comes. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Sorry, just doing a little housekeeping. I want to be able to see over here. Keep my eye on you, Jake. Uh, it's difficult to wrap our minds around this, but uh, let's try to set the scene here. Uh, let's pretend for a moment that we are faithful Jewish people living about 2,000 years ago. Three, three times a year, you make a pilgrimage with your family to Jerusalem for the major feasts of the faith. Uh, you were there during the Feast of Booths, and most recently, you had been there during the Feast of the Passover. The population of Jerusalem swelled to over 100,000 during this time of celebration and remembrance. And this Passover, this one that you just uh, celebrated, was definitely outside the ordinary. You had been there to see a man named Jesus crucified. This Jesus had claimed to be the Messiah, the promised Savior of the Jewish faith, the promised one in your own holy book. Your own holy book said that, that there was going to be one who would come and he would save and he would rescue. And this Jesus had claimed to be that one. And you had heard that this Jesus, uh, this, this man Jesus of Nazareth, unlike maybe some of the others who falsely 
uh, proclaimed to be the Messiah. He did miracles. He healed people. He raised the dead to life. You knew people who said, yes, I saw that happen. I saw him do it. I was there when it happened. You had heard many stories. But the Jewish leaders told you that he was a blasphemer. And so you joined in with the crowd of people telling the Roman authorities to crucify him. Then you went back home. And now you've come back to Jerusalem 50 days later to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. 50 days later, and now I can't even believe what you're experiencing. Right? You're, you're, you come back, and, and never in your wildest dreams could you have imagined. Here are these common folks, these Galileans, uneducated, ordinary people, and they're speaking the languages of everybody from every, every area, every nation that is gathered to Jerusalem, they're speaking your native tongue. And it leads you to this question. What does this mean? How is this happening? How are these people who 10 minutes ago Never knew a word of my language speaking my language to me. And the real surprise is about to be revealed. You think it's surprising that these people are speaking your language? We got something even more surprising for you. More shocking than the fact that they are speaking foreign languages is how they are speaking foreign languages. Do you remember 50 days ago when you were shouting, crucify him? Do you remember that? Remember the guy you watched die 50 days ago? Well, what if I told you that he is the one making all this possible? This morning, we consider Peter's Pentecost sermon. The answer to the question in 2.12 that we ended with last week. What does this mean? The gathered crowd is, is seeing these people speaking in their native language, and they ask, what does this mean? Peter's going to tell you what it means. Matt read to us, Peter telling us what it means. This sermon and its outcome lay the foundation for the work of the church in all the world for all time. As Matt said, as he prayed, we can trace our gathering to that day. This passage sets in motion everything that we're going to study in the book of Acts and everything that we experience as the people of God to this very day. As we consider Peter's answer to what this means, I want us to observe three things this morning. His explanation, his exaltation, and his, and, well, I'm not going to say his. I'll go the explanation, the exaltation, and the salvation. Explanation, exaltation, salvation. Three things. And I, I'm only going to say this once, I promise you. I made a deal with Mark Davis this week that I wouldn't apologize for anything, but I'm just going to say it once. It's not an apology. There's a lot of verses. 
I am not going to be able to cover everything that I would want. I, if I had three or four hours, I could unpack a lot of stuff. I'm going to, I want to let the main thing be the main thing this morning, okay? I want to let the main idea of this passage be the main idea. So uh, there will be things. Please come talk to me afterwards. Come talk to me at the picnic. I'd love to discuss some of the things I'm not going to get to. Uh, but for this morning, explanation, exaltation, and salvation. Here before us is the message that has changed the world. So before we get to Peter's explanation, a couple notes, a couple things that I think are really important as we hear Peter's sermon. First of all, we know this is done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter clearly sat under the teaching of Jesus. We, we hear Peter explaining the scriptures in the same way we heard Jesus explaining the scriptures. Peter makes connections to Old Testament passages, helping the people understand that all of Scripture points to Jesus. Jesus did this, right? Jesus said, if you were in Sunday school this morning, you heard this verse. Jesus said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. He said this to the Jewish leaders. And it's, they all point to Him. And Peter is helping this crowd see that all of Scripture was pointing to this Messiah, this Jesus. Second, I want us to note the boldness in Peter. Is that Peter's character in recent days? Boldness? Peter's boldness comes only by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Formerly a coward, formerly as in like six weeks ago, a coward, now he stood bravely and boldly before this crowd, which seems to have, based on his word, uh, many in it who were the same people yelling, crucify him. He has no way of knowing. What, what ended up happening to Jesus? They crucified him. Peter has no way of knowing how this crowd is going to respond to him. Jesus didn't say, like, when, when you say these things, then it'll be great. Everything's going to go great for you. Right? Did Jesus say kind of the opposite? In this world, you will have trouble. If they treated me like this, what are they going to do to you? Peter has no way of knowing what's going to happen when he stands up here and says this. But he must speak. And it's a word for all of us who desire to teach or preach or evangelize. If you are unwilling to share truths that may be offensive to those who hear them. Is that, is that click bother? I, Paul, Paul told me about it. Do you want me to switch, Paul? Pause. Hello. I'm back. I should have listened to Paul. He, he gave it to me. He said, I hear a little click in there. So uh, anyway, for those who desire to share the gospel, that should be all of us. But then there are some who desire to teach and preach. If we are unwilling to share truths that may be offensive to those who hear them. I'm not saying that we should be known for being nasty people. If you think like, uh, you know, 
Everybody hates me for what I'm, for what I'm sharing. And it's really because you're just being mean. That's that there's no uh, reward in that. Your aim, our aim is to be loving in all that we say. However, the gospel is offensive. Some people hear it and they don't like it. We see it over and over and over. It's a great message. It's great news. It's wonderful news of the mercy of God. But the gospel is offensive to some people. And we'll see the disciples later on in Acts chapter 4 praying for greater boldness to share the word. We must pray for the same. Peter stands with the 11 and he seeks to correct, first of all, the mockers who we talked about last week, who said, these guys are speaking in foreign languages because they're drunk, which again, we talked about last week, is the epitome of folly. How would that work? How does that happen? Being drunk does not teach you foreign languages. Peter tells them, these guys aren't drunk. It's not even nine o'clock in the morning. But they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Speaking to this Jewish audience, he wants to help them see that what is happening is the fulfillment of everything they had been waiting for or said they were waiting for. The Lord had promised to send his spirit in a different way than he had previously. He promised in places like Jeremiah and Ezekiel that there was going to be a new covenant. The old covenant was contingent on man's ability to remain faithful. Spoiler alert, he was not. The old covenant was contingent on man being able to keep the law. He was not. The new covenant said and promised what we could not do for ourselves, the Lord himself would do. That he would give to us his spirit, not to be with us, but to be in us. Taking out our heart of stone, giving to us a heart of flesh, a heart that loves the Lord. He would give that to his people. Peter is telling this, it's remarkable He's telling this crowd, this is what's happening. The Holy Spirit is being poured out in a new way, the way that God has promised, the way that you said you were waiting for, the way that you you had been hoping for. He's pouring it out in that way right now. I was reminded this week as I prepared so, so it's like seeing the fulfillment of the promise. That's what the, this passage is. You are seeing the fulfillment of God's promises. I was reminded of Simeon and Anna, right? In, in, uh, in the uh, book of Matthew. Jesus is presented at the temple. He's eight days old. And what do they say? They, Simeon and Anna, these two faithful, older saints, they see Jesus. And they say, what? I can die in peace now because I've seen your salvation, the Lord's salvation. He kept his promise. The promise has been fulfilled because this little boy is the salvation of the world. And here Peter is saying, understand, crowd, this isn't a bunch of drunken fools 
messing around. This is God fulfilling his promises. Peter tells the crowd that the last days, uh, he's quoting from the book of Joel uh, in verse 17 there, in the last days it shall be. The last days, meaning the culmination of salvation history. Salvation history has reached its apex. In the last days, he sends his son, just as he foretold. The spirit would be poured out. Miraculous signs would be seen in all the earth. If you're wondering, as, as Matt read, uh, and I, we read this passage also in, in the service last week, about the whole blood, fire, vapor of smoke, sun turned to darkness, moon turned to blood. Were you thinking about that as we read through? Like, all right, I, I think I get some of this, but like, what do we got going there? What's, what's all that? This refers to the consummation of everything, the end of everything, which has not yet been fulfilled. But the Lord had begun to fulfill this prophecy by pouring out his spirit. The end of all things has not happened yet, but it will come. And the Lord tarries. He waits. Why? Because he is kind. Because he is patient. Not wanting any to perish, but wanting all to come to repentance. And it would be that everyone who sees these signs and then, what's it say in Joel? If they call upon the name of the Lord, what will happen? They will be saved, saved from the wrath that is to come against all who do not believe, all who reject the Lord, all who see the evidence given. This crowd is a great example. They see the evidence given. These people are speaking foreign languages miraculously and saying, ah, they're drunk. They're drunk. People like that Mockers, revilers. The Lord is performing this mighty sign so that those people might look to him and find salvation. Not because of the gift he was pouring out, but that they would look to the giver of that gift. So Peter takes this opportunity not to boast. Peter doesn't spend any time boasting in, wow, wasn't that amazing what we just did? Was it? I don't, I, I'm stunned by myself that, that that happened. Peter does not boast in them. He does not boast in their speaking in tongues. He doesn't make much of this particular sign in and of itself. But what he does in this passage is to point the crowd to the one who is exalted above all, the giver of the gift. The crowd wants to know what this sign means. And Peter here tells them it means... That the guy you crucified is Lord and King over all. These signs are only possible because Jesus has made them possible. We go back. Remember chapter 1? Turn your, you have your Bibles open? Turn it back. Chapter 1. Verse 1. I've referred to this a few times in the last four weeks. Luke says in, in, in Acts 1.1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus 
began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So, so we, we saw in the book of Luke all that Jesus began to do and teach. And now, after he has risen and ascended, we are learning about everything that he continues to do and teach. And here, Peter is saying, this is his work. He's continuing his work. This guy that you crucified 50 days ago is still working. He tells this crowd, in, in, flipping back to chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. He, he appeals to them by saying, you know what he did. I thought that was pretty striking as I studied the text. I, they didn't deny his miracles. You know what he did. You know what he did while he dwelt among you. Peter reminds them that ultimately... Jesus' mighty works meant that he was attested to them by God himself. So now he's saying to them, listen, you rejected God. Jesus said he was the Messiah. He showed in his mighty works and acts that he was the Messiah. And you rejected him. Therefore, you rejected the God who you say you're coming here to Pentecost to worship. You rejected your God. reminiscent of the words of the Pharisee Nicodemus in John chapter 3 as he came to Jesus by night. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. So Peter is telling this crowd, you know. Your rejection of him is so vile that you know who he is, and you still killed him. The Pharisees, Nicodemus is confessing, we know you come from God, but you don't fit our agenda. You're not on our side. You're not, you're not giving us the attaboys that we want, so we're going to kill you. Such is the heart of wickedness of mankind that we can look in the face of a miracle worker who says, I am the Savior, and say, I don't like what you have to say. Kill him. And so Peter says, now, Israelite brethren, let me tell you about this Jesus. This Jesus who performed mighty works and wonders, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Twice in this passage, Peter tells them that though they may not have held the hammer and hammered the nails in to his hands and his feet, this crowd was guilty of the blood of Jesus. He said, you crucified him. A crowd like this one had not many days before, six weeks before, yelled his blood be on us and our children. 
And now Peter's saying, his blood is on you. You killed him. Just because other people had done the actual execution does not absolve the Jewish people from the greatest guilt. He was their Messiah. They had been looking for him, waiting for him. He checked all the boxes and yet they rejected him. I wonder if some are sitting here today not believing that Jesus is Lord and Savior. That he is not who he said he is. I want to ask you today, what is the basis of your rejection of his claims? If you're saying, no, I don't believe that today. What is the basis of your rejection? Maybe some will say, well, I can't see him. I don't, I don't see him. And if I, if I saw him, maybe I'd believe. Maybe others say, I need proof. Above and beyond just hearing that he died and was raised from the dead. And the testimony of hundreds and thousands of faithful people. And maybe some would say, yeah, he probably is. He probably is the Savior. But I know that he makes demands on my life. And I don't want to follow him. I don't want to take up my cross and follow him. I challenge you to consider this morning. Not any of the, the external stuff. But is he who he says he is? Is Jesus who he says he is? Is Jesus who Peter says he is? If so, stop rejecting him. If so, what prevents you from believing today? Yes, Peter says that this crowd killed him. But he also tells them it wasn't just their doing. They weren't the only responsible party. Who else does he say is responsible for this death in this passage? Who else does he say bears some responsibility? Go ahead. Church answer. I I, I throw those out there. You can just say God. Yeah. Yes. Peter tells them, you killed him. You're guilty. He was delivered over according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God was not passive in this. God was not surprised by this. This was his plan all along. Jesus did not simply come to do some signs and miracles or just to be a good teacher. He came to submit himself to death on a cross that he might taste death for us all. He came by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And I just want to say here, that word foreknowledge, that doesn't mean God looked down the corridors of time and said, oh, look, I think that's going to happen at some point because I see it happening. Foreknowledge indicates much more than just he happens to know what's going to happen in the future. This means an active decision making, a knowing beforehand what the intended plan is. God knew 
in a, in a decisive, authoritative way what the plan was going to be. And the plan was going to be that this Jesus would taste death for us all and loose the pangs of death. What are pangs? What was that, Gail? A feeling? Yeah, yeah. What, and a specific feeling. What? Pain. This, this particular pangs refers to like birth pains. And Jesus was going to die and be raised to take away the pain of death. To undo the cords of the grave. This is a reference to Psalm 18. If you want to take a look back there with me real quick. Psalm 18. This is written by David. Clearly, uh, there, was a, there was a fulfillment partially in the life of David. And, and yet, as we see all throughout the Psalms, including two more that are quoted in this passage, they are fulfilled in Jesus. Psalm 18.4, the cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To, to my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. I won't keep going, though I would encourage you to read Psalm 18 at some point uh, this week. Jesus loosed the pangs of death in such a way that the Apostle Paul could declare in 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus loosed the pangs of death. He made it so that for those who are his, because of his death, our death has no sting anymore. Death is a servant which ushers us into the eternal presence of God, into eternal bliss and joy. Jesus loosed the pangs of death. He overcame death because as Peter says, it was not possible for him to be held by death. Not possible for him to be held by the grave. Jesus is stronger than death. How about that? The Lord God is Lord over death. Death came from the fall and Jesus undoes the fall. Jesus is the true and better Adam. God raised him up. From, from the grave, and because he lives, all who trust in him will live. Because he lives, we who believe in him are no longer slaves to the fear of death. We don't need to be afraid of death. The pangs of death have been loosed in him. At Pentecost, the signs and wonders were proof that the guy they killed was not dead. 
He was still working in a mighty way. And he was doing so just as their forefather David had looked forward to. Back in Acts. You have your Bibles back in Acts? Acts chapter 2. Peter uses Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. He quotes them in verse 25 through 28. He quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, later down there in verse uh, 34 and 35. Jesus himself also quoted Psalm 110 of himself. Peter uses these verses to remind the gathered crowd. Again, these are faithful Jews remind the gathered crowd that David himself waited for one who would truly fulfill these words. David was not the fulfillment. Peter says, David died. His tomb is here with us. His body saw decay. David longed for the day when one would fulfill these words. You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. David was longing for this day. Don't you see it? This isn't about speaking in tongues. This is about the Messiah has come. One had come who would reign on David's throne forever. And David foresaw and prophesied the day to come that the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior would rise from the dead as the fulfillment of Psalm 16. Beyond that is a fulfillment of Psalm 110. The resurrected Savior would ascend and be exalted to the right hand of God the Father. Ruling as king over all. He is savior. He is king. He is alive. He is at the right hand of the father. That's who he is. The guy you crucified 50 days ago. That's who he is. This Jesus. We saw him. That's what Peter's saying. We are witnesses. We saw it. He was dead and then he lived Then he ascended into heaven and he took his place at God's right hand. He is Lord and Christ. And because he is Lord and Christ, because he is the ruling king of the universe, because death has no power over him, by that mighty and ruling power, that is why you saw what you saw today, brothers and sisters. In the upper room before his death, Jesus told the disciples that he was going to send the Holy Spirit to be in them. In the beginning of Acts, Luke recounts how Jesus told them to wait for the promise of the Father, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and now the outpouring had come, and Peter wanted it to be crystal clear that what the crowd was seeing was proof that Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God. I I know I've said that a number of times in a row, and sometimes I need to not say things a number of times in a row. This is the basis for everything that we do. Everything that we're going to learn in Acts, everything about the church, this is the basis that he really is who he said he was. Peter takes great pains to exalt God the Father and Jesus the Son, not the signs themselves. This is about Jesus. Larry reminded us over the summer as we were going through uh, the the gifts of the fruits of the fruit of the Spirit in the book of Proverbs that the Holy Spirit's work 
is always to shine the light on Jesus. And Peter's saying, that's what's happening here. The Holy Spirit is shining the light on Jesus. We do well to remember that too. Everything we have, all of our gifts, all of our talents, everything we have is is intended to shine the spotlight on Jesus. Praise is never meant to land on us and stay on us. What do we have that we were not given? Was there something special about us that made God love us and save us? Something that made us better than others? No way. And therefore, we take great pains to point all praise and honor back to the one to whom it is due. And that's what Peter is doing here. He's saying, this is about Jesus, the guy you killed 50 days ago. Peter tells the crowd, the house of Israel, that if they are amazed by what they see, they should know for certain, he says. Know for certain. This is verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He was always Lord, but God made him both Lord and Christ through his death and resurrection. He was always going to be the Messiah, but he fulfilled the role in his perfect life, sinless death, and victorious resurrection. And if you're starting to get nervous, if you're thinking, I think he said there were three points. I've already hit two of them, all right? We're heading to point three. So what happens? The Holy Spirit pours out this gift. The people are saying, what what is happening? What does this mean? Peter says it means that Jesus is the exalted king, Lord and Christ. The one you killed 50 days ago. And what's the crowd's reaction? Now, this is not everybody in the crowd. There's a good chance that there are a lot of people in the crowd who do not have this reaction. But the crowd that just a little while ago asked, what does this mean? Now they ask another question. Brothers, what shall we do? See, the guy you killed 50 days ago, now he's ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father. And you might make the conclusion that if that's true, and I'm starting to feel it's true, I'm feeling the weight of it, it's fallen on me. It's like, oh, I joined in with a crowd that consented to the death of the promised Messiah, the guy that I say I've been waiting for, and now he's in heaven. And he has power. And he can do whatever he wants with people like me. And they say, brothers, what, what shall we do? We're in trouble. The crowd is coming to grips with a difficult reality. They had been cut to the heart, it says in verse 37. They had been cut to the heart. 
Peter's sermon brought about this response, the work of the Holy Spirit. Peter's sermon brought this response, but I want to make a quick side note before I get to their response. Peter's job was to say what he was supposed to say. Peter did not cut them to the heart. He had zero control. I said this earlier. He had zero control over how they would respond. Zero knowledge of what they would do. In his mind, it probably was just as likely that he was going to be the next one on a cross. And he would be eventually. He had no way of knowing how they would react. They might have said, this guy's a moron. They might have said, shut his mouth by any means necessary. He had no way of knowing, but he was faithful to share the words of God. That's the same thing he calls us to, brothers and sisters. He doesn't ask us to produce results for him. He calls us to be faithful. His word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. His word and his spirit will do the work. He calls us to faithfulness. So the crowd asks, what shall we do? And really, I mean, like, what shall we do? We're going to have to face this guy one day? He's not dead anymore? These people crucified the Son of God, and now he had defeated death. What shall they do? What happens when people feel the full weight of their rebellion against God? When the Lord lays his finger upon you in a way that you realize, I have lived my life for myself and I have killed all opponents. Anybody who opposes my happiness, my getting what I want, any enemies, any contenders for me being on the throne of my life, I put them to death because I want what I want. Even if it means I got to kill God, as if that were possible. What happens when a person realizes, I have lived my life for myself, and I know that there's a God to whom I'm going to give account one day? What happens next? The Lord has no obligation to do anything toward rebels. If he made us, he has every right to do with us as he pleases. If we have lived contrary to his will for us, we are owed zero hope. And Peter's message on that day could have been, hey, you blew it. You had your chance. Good luck. But when this crowd asks, what shall we do? Peter does not say, it's too late. As long as we have breath, it's not too late. Peter tells them to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. The name that they had so defamed, in this name they could be forgiven. These signs came that their hearts might be stirred to repentance and faith. What does Peter mean when he tells them to repent? 
What does repentance mean here? What do you think? Change your mind. See, sometimes we have in mind, and there are, there are places in Scripture where repentance is stop doing this and start doing this. Peter is saying, stop disbelieving and start believing. That's what repentance is in this passage. You have disbelieved to the point that you put him up on a cross. You killed him. Stop disbelieving and believe that he is who he says he is. That's repentance. Repent. Save yourselves from this crooked generation of people who see God and reject him. Peter pleads. It's truly remarkable that Jesus died for the likes of this crowd. Isaiah 53 talks about it, right? If you read Isaiah 53, you see, like, these people are killing him. The whole crowd doesn't understand what? That he's dying for them. The very people who are killing him. It's truly remarkable that Jesus died for the likes of this crowd. And I say that to present company. Do you understand, brothers and sisters, how extravagant the grace of God is? Do you understand that this crowd in Acts chapter 2 is possibly the worst group of people ever assembled? And if we had the opportunity, we would have joined in. They consented to the death of the Savior of the world. And to the worst group of people ever assembled, Peter tells them there's hope. Forgiveness can be found. The Lord who has no obligation to forgive, he's willing to forgive. Who then is beyond the hope of the gospel? Nobody. What person can we look at and say, well, listen, God can save a lot of people. He cannot save this person. Who? Nobody. Who were we? Who have we been? What worthiness was found in us? He saved us. He is a forgiving and saving God. And we need to be reminded again that if he could save, I mean, this is the worst crowd of people ever. I, I, I labored whether I should say that. They are. They are. They stood there and consented to, to Jesus being crucified. And I, I labor under no assumption that I would have done better. And when they were cut to the heart, they were offered the forgiveness and mercy of God. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the message that has transformed the world. That those who have rebelled against the God of the universe can be offered forgiveness, salvation, and the hope of eternal life. There will be people in this crowd who, would, who walked into this gathering 
as those who consented to the death of Jesus and they would walk out declared righteous in the courts of heaven. Because they believed in the one who died. Why would they be declared righteous? Based on anything they did on that day? Only through faith in the one who died. The promise, the gift of the Holy Spirit is for Israel and beyond. The promise is for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Up to this very day. Peter at this point probably still has all the Jewish people in his mind as he's talking about it's for you, your children, and all who are far off. Peter was still lacking in a little bit of understanding of how far this gospel was going to go. God will show him. We'll get there in Acts chapter 10. But we understand that the grace of God and the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ goes to the ends of the earth. The hope is offered to all. Speaking in tongues is not the story of the day at Pentecost. The story of the day is that Jesus Christ is risen and exalted. The story is that this risen and exalted king did not send Peter here to condemn the wicked crowd, but to speak of mercy, forgiveness, and salvation. The church will be built on this bedrock of the gospel and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. All glory be to Christ. Would you pray with me? Yours and yours alone is the glory and the honor. Thank you, Father, that your posture toward wayward sinners is to forgive the repentant. Father, change hearts, open eyes. If there are some in here who are disbelieving, help them to hear and believe, see with eyes of faith the exhortation to stop disbelieving and believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that our hope is found in his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection. Thank you that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. Thank you, Father, for your work in us and among us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.